Amen. Good morning, church. What a joy to be together today. I am excited for what God has for us. I do uh, want to give you guys a quick little update before we get into it. You know, we've talked a couple times over the last month or so uh, about this sister church in our association, Redemption Road Church. I've gone over there and helped fill their pulpit a little bit while uh, their pastor, Pastor Brandon, has been kind of recovering from a, just a personal tragedy. Uh, and I just wanted to share a cool thing with you guys. Uh, so actually, you know, we, we kind of do the preaching calendar a good, a good chunk of time in advance. Uh, and actually, maybe back in February or March, we scheduled Brandon to come preach for us today on this text. Uh, and he's not here. Uh, that's because today is his first day back in the pulpit at Redemption Road, which is a pretty cool thing just to see God moving in that way. And I, w- I want to thank you guys for your generosity as a church to, for us to give some time and effort and share some of our leadership to help that church recover, but also just, man, praise God. God is moving over at Redemption. I want to ask you guys to continue to be in prayer for Redemption Road Church in Winfield, Missouri, as well as Pastor Brandon as they uh, navigate uh, this, just this unique experience together. So today we are continuing our series in Matthew. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 9, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 9. You know, uh, I'm, I'm guessing at this point most of you guys know this, but if you don't, so, you know, Kim and I are foster parents, uh, and, and I'll tell you guys, it's, it's one of the greatest joys in my entire life to participate in this ministry to kids in need. It's, it's also easily and without exaggeration uh, the hardest ministry I've ever partaken in. Far and above anything else I've done, I've been in vocational ministry for more than a decade, and I've worked with kids and adults and all those different things, but man, sitting and giving of yourself to deal with kids who've had traumatic stories and seeing the way that that complexity affects uh, you know, my own biological family, my, my kids and my wife, as well as uh, myself, <laughs> just spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, right? Like it's, it's just, like there's no way to say that honestly without saying it's heavy. It's, it's, it's a lot. And some days, guys, I, I mean, man, I struggle with that ministry call that I've said yes to. But, but also, I also like, can just really quickly tell you I wouldn't trade it for anything. It, it's a ministry that's, that is well worth the cost. Now, I don't say that to puff myself up. I say that because I think this is actually a good lead-in to where God has taken us today. I recently had an encounter with one of my kids where they were just totally dysregulated, which is the fancy term they use in you know foster world for just kids that are behaving poorly. <laughs> uh, the behavior was off the charts, inappropriate, uh, and how this child is treating siblings, Kim, myself, if several attempts to engage the situation, I eventually had to just take this kid into another room and sit with them one-on-one. Uh, they proceeded to kick me, bite me, hit me, tell me how much they didn't like me, Tell me how much they didn't want me to be their parent, how much they didn't want me to talk to them anymore. Because I would be, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you, like, I'm human. <laughs> and that was not a pleasant experience. Uh, and in fact, not, not, only, not only was not just like an unpleasant experience, that was a hurtful, like, wounding <laughs> experience, right? It was not pleasant. And most days, and I'm telling you this part confessionally, guys, like, just in case... You've got some weird image in your mind that, like, Kim and I are the perfect parents. Most days, my response in this situation would be to get hurt, get angry, and just drop the hammer on this child in terms of consequences, punishment, raising my voice, all all the specific things they train you not to do in foster parenting classes, uh, actually. That's usually, usually where I go pretty quickly in my flesh and in my sin. This particular day, by the grace of God, which we just sang a lot about, uh, for whatever reason, man, I just was just more sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. My heart was drawn uh, in this moment not to anger, but to compassion. All right, this kid was speaking out of their own hurt, their own frustration, their own exhaustion from the pace of life and things in their experience that were out of control. They didn't need me to drop the hammer. They needed me to respond with, with love, but also with safety. Right, to be who they were and experience what they're experiencing. So in that moment, 
I take this kid. You notice how I'm being really careful. I'm not even giving you the gender of the child, right? You all know my kids. This is as anonymous as it can be. In this moment, I take the kid. I hold them close. I tell them they're loved. I tell them they're safe. I do these breathing exercises they teach you to do. And it took a while of me holding the kid and kicking and screaming and more. I don't like you. I don't love you. Don't talk to me. And just going, nope, let's breathe. Let's count to 10. Nope, let's breathe. Let's count to 10. And just slowly over the course of 15, 20, 25 minutes, this kid calmed down and breathes in with me and breathes out with me. And we're there. And before I say anything, before I prompt anything, this kid goes from huffing, screaming, kicking, biting, welling up with tears, and just says, Dad, I'm so sorry for how I spoke to you. I'm so sorry for that. And just immediately seeks reconciliation. They embrace me. And we, you know, we move back. I'm tearing up. Dang. We just, we move back to what we need to move to as a family, right? And it, and it fosters this environment of love, safety, healing. In, 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 in an environment in our home, just to be totally honest, which is often pretty chaotic, right? M mixing together, like four kids, mixing together kids from two different biological families, like with trauma, like it's, it's oftentimes chaotic in our home. And in this particular moment, this leading of the spirit, there was a movement towards some healing, some peace, some just some gospel. Why do I share that? It's certainly not to puff me up, I assure you. Because I, I wish I could be like, yeah, guys, this is just how we roll in the Tunnel House. Like, we're just godly in our parenting. I don't know what you guys are dealing with, but we just are like, I don't know, Jesus, how do you want me to treat my kids? I just do that, you know? That's not how it goes down most of the time. But this particular time, the spirit was just, I guess, loud enough to get my attention. And there was this beautiful moment of just gospel, of kingdom in my house. I share that, beloved, because of this. It is the kindness of God that leads to our repentance. It is the kindness of our God that draws us from our sin, from our hard-heartedness, from the death that is within us to the life of Christ. We worship a God who sees this world, sees this world broken in its sin, sees this world hard-hearted in its rebellion, sees this world ruined by the evil that is the curse, both the evil that we perform and the evil that is done to us. We worship a God who sees that, and his response is compassion. He doesn't stand off in the distance, but rather he steps down into the muck of the curse with us. And he offers us love and he serves us and he gives us his compassion and ultimately he gives us his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Beloved, if we have enough clarity to consider it, each one of us who is in Christ can remember this is our testimony. That we were the one ruined, broken, given over to the desires of the flesh and God in his compassion stepped down into our mess and saw through our sin and our rebellion and our hard-heartedness, and in his compassionate love gave us kindness. Amen? This is our testimony. This is also our invitation. We get to join Jesus in the work of offering compassion to a broken and sinful world in desperate need. Amen? So let's read our text today in Matthew 9. Starting in verse 27, we read this. As Jesus went out from there, two blind men following him called out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. But Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them 
because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father, we ask today that you would speak to us afresh through your word. God, we ask today that regardless of what what we're bringing into this space today, Lord, I know that that each and every one of us in the complexity of our hearts and our experience that we, we approach any given Sunday from a myriad of places. Lord, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us today. Speak through your word, Spirit. Encourage us, remind us, convict us, challenge us. Or give us, give us clear memories to remember your faithfulness. And Lord, give us courage to join with you in your work. Jesus, we need you to accomplish this. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so what's going on here? You have to remember... We're stepping into the middle of a series of these miracle narratives that that follow the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been going through Matthew for a while, right? We went through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches kind of, here's the structure of my kingdom. Here's the ethics of the kingdom of God. Here's what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And then we get this back-to-back series of narratives, most of them recalling miracles Jesus performed, although not all of them. And in these stories about Jesus, we get this kind of, we kind of just get the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, put on display. The principles Jesus taught in the sermon are shown through his life and his ministry as we work our way through this chunk of narrative. But there's also this simultaneous second narrative piece going on, which is this. Jesus and his followers, they're traveling around Galilee, preaching and teaching and doing miracles and showing what the kingdom of God looks like. But simultaneous to that, there's this growing tension where the local religious leaders, the synagogue leaders, the Pharisees, all these folk who have the authority within the Jewish faith in this time and this place, they're becoming increasingly suspicious of Jesus. And they're actually beginning to move from suspicion of Jesus to outright opposition of Jesus. And it simply comes down to this. You can't argue with the results of Jesus' ministry, right? He's walking around and doing miracles. It's hard to fight that. But he also just refuses to submit to their expectations of what a first century pharisaical rabbi should look like. They have very specific expectations of how Jesus should dress and teach and speak and act and order his time and who he should fellowship with and what sort of boundaries he should set. And Jesus just refuses to submit to them. He keeps doing his own thing. And it it moves the Pharisees from going, I'm not so sure about this guy. He's kind of weird to going, no, I think this guy is nefarious. To going, nope, this guy is doing demonic heretical ministry. And that's what we see in our text, right? Jesus is healing people and casting out demons. And it gets to the point where the religious leaders go, well, he's just using demonic power to do that. This guy's evil, right? This is a pretty serious and intense opposition to Jesus' ministry that we're seeing here. And this is happening simultaneous to Jesus' ministry growing in size and scope and momentum. And there's this interesting contrast Matthew hands us here, which I think is really important for us. So remember, we're stepping into the middle of these series of narratives, but we're stepping into one particular narrative that's really important. And it comes down to this beginning part where Jesus heals these two blind guys. So he's been preaching and teaching in and around Capernaum, all around Galilee, but really his home base is kind of in Capernaum. And we're told that these two blind guys start calling out to him. And look at what they say. Have mercy on us, son of David. They're calling out to Jesus. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now there's an important thing, for a couple important things for us to understand here. The first one is this. There were a lot of people who claimed to be miracle workers or Messiah figures or supernatural healers or exorcists 
in this day. And you can imagine, by the way, in a day before modern medical science, where like that kind of thing could become something that works its way through some of these communities, right? There were a lot of people who claimed to use spiritual power to do miraculous healings. But one thing that was just, for whatever reason, culturally and mentally off limits to first century Jewish people was blindness. And the reason is this. Out of all the miracles recorded in the Old Testament, there aren't any recordings in the Old Testament of the blind being healed. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but what happened is by the first century, it just became a separate category. And in the kind of the standard mindset of these folk, they would look at blindness, and instead of thinking, ah, that's an illness that could be healed by the right faith healer, they looked at blindness as a sign of a curse from God. Oh, you sinned, or your parents sinned, and so God's judgment is working itself out on you. In fact, there's a whole debate around this later in Jesus' ministry when some people ask him, hey, why did God allow this person to be born blind? Blindness was not something that was considered a healable ailment, which you kind of in your mind go, I mean, aren't we talking about supernatural healings, right? That seems kind of arbitrary. It is. But here's what's interesting. Of all the things, of all the categories of miracles Jesus might do, if you look at the four Gospels, what is his most commonly, most often repeated supernatural miracle? Healing of the blind. What's the reason for that? Why would Jesus zone in on this thing that's so kind of culturally just out of reach in that moment? I think there's a very specific reason, and I think these guys hand it to us in how they approach Jesus. Look what they say. Have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David was specifically a messianic title. These men are claiming Jesus as Messiah and asking him to heal them out of the authority of that role. Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He is no ordinary traveling healer. He is something new. He is something more. He's the son of David. Now, it's worth noting that this particular encounter must have become well-known in Jesus' ministry. Because later on, in his final approach to Jerusalem, as he approaches to the city of Jericho, two other blind men who hear he's passing by cry out to him. And what do they say to him? Son of David, have mercy on us. They go, hey, I heard this worked for some guys up in Galilee. Let's try it, see what happens. This, this aspect of Jesus' ministry became known. And by the way, this is like a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's actually interesting for us. Because this is a particular like, thing that was called out to Jesus by, by people in more than one context, the early church actually latched onto this phrase. And this line became uh, known simply as the Jesus prayer. And it's something that uh, Christians have included oftentimes in their personal worship, literally going back to like the earliest desert fathers, like 2,000 years ago, this, uh, this phrase, Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner, uh, is derived from, from those texts. And it's something that Christians have incorporated into their worship. I'm not telling you you should, by the way. But it's, just, it's interesting that there's something about this, this cry that these blind men, in more than one occasion, cry out to Jesus that, is, that has kind of captured the Christian imagination for the last 2,000 years. And there's probably something to that. What we see in the story of the healed blind men, and by the way, the healed demoniac, is that the people to whom Jesus is ministering they're becoming increasingly aware and confident of who he is and what his ministry is. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He's here to save us. At the same time that the religious leaders are becoming increasingly convinced that there's something off with Jesus and they actually need to not just be suspicious of him, but actively oppose him, the crowds, the common people, the recipients of Jesus's ministry are becoming increasingly confident that they can trust him as Messiah. I think that's interesting. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I think, or we actually, we just talked about it a few minutes ago. I think the reason here is really relatable. Because Jesus does not fit the mold the religious leaders expected. It's important, to, it's important to consider that. And I'll tell you why. It's really easy as a modern Western Christian to turn our nose up at the Pharisees in the Gospels. And part of that is intentional, right? Like, they're written to let you know, like, these are the bad guys. <laughs> but here's the thing, guys. If you want to think about our current spiritual experience, right? Who's 
the analog for the Pharisees in the modern American Western church? Well, let me tell you who the Pharisees were in the religious practice of first century Judaism. They were socially and theologically conservative, faithful church people. Now, if you, if you think that's me like poking a finger at, no, that's who they were. They were people who deeply cared about the sacredness of the word of God. They were people who were incredibly faithful to their worship attendance and their involvement in the local church and things like community engagement and service and financial giving and personal holiness and spiritual disciplines. These are people who really cared about God, cared about holiness. And when they looked at Jesus and they saw his ministry, it didn't fit their mold, and so they rejected him. It's easy to write these guys off, but it's actually important for us to remember them because a lot of their temptations are our temptations. And by the way, not all the Pharisees were bad guys. Some of them were able to push past their religious tradition and see Jesus for who he really was. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the Apostle Paul, right? God worked in Pharisees' lives also. They're not just like the creepy bad guys in the back of the story. But it's important to remember, you get calcified in your religious experience and your religious traditions. You can get calcified in that. You can get so stuck in your ways that you actually miss what God is doing pretty dramatically. These guys have no categories for Jesus because it doesn't fit the mold they expect. He's not spending all his time at church with the educated and the holy. He spends his time with sinners and outcasts. He goes out amongst the poor and the sick and the evil. The kind of folk that God saw fit to curse with blindness are invited into Jesus' home. But our text today shows us something so important and so amazing about Jesus and his ministry. I love this bit. Jesus' response to all the criticism he's getting from the very folk who should be rallying around his cause, right? The people who spend all their time studying the word, these should be the people who are Jesus' biggest supporters. Instead, they're becoming his most vocal critics, and they're, they're very intensely critiquing his ministry. They're saying he's using demonic power to do healings, right? Jesus' response to their criticism is to simply continue on with his ministry. <laughs> do you notice that? In verse 35, it hands this to us plain as day. Jesus just continued his ministry. He continued going out through all the towns and all the villages in Galilee. He taught in their synagogues. He proclaimed the good news. He healed sickness. He cast out demons. He just went about his ministry in spite of the criticism. And look at the why. It is not just the what. Oh, wow, Jesus was able to like push through that criticism and do the work he needed to do. Look at the why. Why was Jesus so motivated to continue on in spite of growing opposition? Because he had compassion on the crowds. He had compassion on them. And we've got to talk about this for a second. In all four Gospels, oftentimes this word, the crowd, kind of becomes its own character in terms of what the crowd represents in the Gospel story. And, and, and I'll be honest, guys, it's not terribly positive. The crowds hound Jesus. The crowds worship him one minute and turn on him the next. The crowds harass Jesus so much that he can't even take a minute to eat a meal or take a day off after some hard work to rest with his friends. The crowds also freak out and try and stone him when they don't like what he says, or they tell him to leave certain communities and not come back. The crowd in the Gospels is fickle. And if we're honest, the crowd's motivation for spending time with Jesus is almost always suspect at best. The crowd is there for what they get from Jesus. They follow him looking for miracles. They follow him looking for healings. They follow him looking for free food. And Jesus' response to the crowd is compassion. And their selfishness and their neediness and their fickleness. He looks at their crowd. He looks at them in their sin. He looks at them wrecked and broken by the reality of the curse. He sees the effects of their own sinfulness mixed in with all the ways that sinful oppression and injustice has hurt and burden them, and his response, beloved, is compassion. Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. 
I don't know how much you guys know about sheep. I know very little. But what I've read, sheep without a shepherd are pretty much helpless. They may make bad and unwise decisions, but apparently they're also just as likely to just be killed by their environment because they're that unable to actually care for themselves. This is the crowd's reality. These men weren't born blind because God was punishing him. They were born into a cursed world with such a thing as sickness. There would be no demoniacs were it not for the reality of sin. Or looking back over our text, daughters who die at the age of 12 or women who struggle with fertility becomes life dominating. These things would not be this way were it not for sin. And when Jesus sees the reality of the curse having its way with his beloved creation, his response is an anger and judgment of their sin. It isn't judgment for their uncleanliness. It isn't rebuke and reproof for all the ways they failed and brought this upon themselves. Rather, it is compassion. They're distressed. They're dejected. The sheep, they need a shepherd. So what does Jesus do? He serves. In spite of the conflict, in spite of the opposition, in spite of their neediness and their ungratefulness, he serves. He puts the crowd above himself and he gives of himself to them. I think we need to stop here for a minute. We need to stop here for a minute because guys, this is really just how the whole gospel works. Right? We are stuck in our sin. But Jesus in his compassion seeks us out and rather than treat us according to our sin and the effects of sin upon us, he treats us according to his own love for us. Can we consider that afresh for a moment? Rather than treating us according to our own sin, according to our own uncleanliness from the sin done to us, Jesus treats us according to his own compassionate love for us. Come on, church. I mean, this is my testimony, right? If you were in Christ, this is your testimony, amen? Didn't Jesus find you in your brokenness? Didn't Jesus meet you in the sins you committed? Didn't he have grace upon you for the sins that were committed against you and offer you the lifeline of grace and forgiveness and healing and restoration? Is that not your own testimony, beloved? I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago, When we started out chapter 9, we talked about Jesus quoting the prophet Hosea. You guys remember this if you were here? How how he wanted the the religious leaders to learn this text about how God wants mercy, not sacrifice. We talked about how this word mercy was a translation of this this Jewish word, um, this Hebrew word hesed, referring to the steadfast and patient love of God. There's this interesting gospel thread that runs throughout the whole of Matthew 9. It actually culminates in the end of our text. I want to draw your attention to it really quick because I think it's helpful here. So it starts at the beginning of the chapter when Jesus challenges the religious leaders, right? He wants them to go and study the scripture. Go, go back and reread Hosea and see what God meant when he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Figure out what it means for you to live with the said love of God, Jesus says to these religious leaders who are challenging him, who don't get his ministry. And then it continues when two blind men, two men who would be considered by most Jewish teachers of that day to be cursed by God, where they say, you remember what they say to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Well, that Greek word mercy, one hint, what word it is. Same word. They say, Messiah, give us God's compassionate said love. Messiah, give us the love of God. It's the same word. The religious leaders didn't get it, but these two blind men, they knew enough to know that Jesus was Messiah and what they needed was the chesed of God. They needed mercy. And then look what happens as the text concludes. Jesus looks out upon the crowds, his creation, people he made in his own image, destroyed by sin, and he has compassion. Now this word compassion is actually related to the same word. It's not the same word, but it's a, it, it's, it's borderline synonym connected to this word about the faithful love of God. But rather than simply describing, like this word mercy, describing the faithful, steadfast 
Hesed, love of God. This word that we read is compassion that Jesus uses here. This is about experiencing, feeling that Hesed love deep within your person. It actually, in a very literal sense, translates to that, that love worming its way down to your intestines. When it says Jesus had compassion on the crowds, it's saying the Hesed love of Jesus, that's not surface level. That's not a show he's putting on. It's deep in his core, in the deepest parts of his person. Beloved, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Jesus loves you with all his guts. All the way down. He loves you in the deepest parts of his person. Beloved, this is your testimony. In Christ, this is the gospel story. Jesus loves you so very much. He has compassion on you. He saw you wrecked and ruined by the curse and he had mercy on you. He sought you out and then he served you. He gave you dignity. In the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your hard-heartedness, in the midst of your rebellion, the God of the universe serves you and dignifies you and forgives you and offers healing to you. The gospel is freely given. Beloved, what a joy. So, what do we actually do with this text? I mean, it's a cool reminder of the gospel, and we could stop there and just praise Jesus, and that'd probably be good enough. And if you're in this space, by the way, and you haven't yet found life in Christ, man, what an invitation for you to consider afresh the invitation that God has for you today. And I would urge you to do so. Urge you to consider the love that Jesus is offering to you, because it is freely available right here and right now. There is no barrier between you and the forgiveness of Christ. You want it, you can have it. But for those of us who are in Christ, we sit in this text today, we're reminded of our testimony. What do we do with this? Well, I think the first thing you do is you praise God. <laughs> Remember your testimony and praise God. Praise the God who sought you out in the muck and the mire. Amen? But look, before we land, at Jesus' own response. Notice how he doesn't just teach and serve the hurting, and those in need, he also turns to his followers. Look how our text ends. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. There is work to be done. There are a lot of sheep without a shepherd. There's a whole creation out there that is hurting and dejected. It's a strong word Jesus uses. But that's what the curse does to human beings made in God's image. Ruins them. There is so much need. And so Jesus is calling his followers to join him in the work. We're about to transition to a whole new section of text. When we head into uh, chapter 10, we're going to step into the next one of Jesus' kind of narratives and teachings. And this whole next section of teaching is centered around Jesus commissioning and sending his followers out to do the work with him. And he's going to spend a whole long time going into deep detail about what it looks like to join Jesus in the work of mission in the world. But in this little chunk of transitional text here, we get this perfect summary. We get the blueprint for what it looks like to be with Jesus in the work of seeking and saving the lost. And I'll give it to you in five points. I know, five points. It looks like this. To join Jesus in the work of the kingdom looks like gratitude. It looks like compassion. It looks like service. It looks like proclamation. And it looks like prayer. Probably should have made those all start with the same letter, but I mean, that's not how my brain works. Sorry. Let's land out today by talking about each one of these for a second, because I think this is going to be actually helpful for us. Gratitude. Because this is what we already talked about. This is just remembering your testimony. To see Jesus' compassion on the crowd is to remember his compassion for you. And to praise him for it. It's to actually live your life day to day, minute by minute, with the sense of joy and gratitude for the kindness of God poured out in your undeserving life. It's a real part of joining with Christ in the work is to remember, I was in the crowd and Jesus sought me out. And we, we're, we love because he loved us, right? So gratitude. And then compassion. We've we got to talk about this one for a second. 
Jesus didn't respond to the brokenness of the world with judgment and anger. He responded with love and compassion. And guys, this is where we have to stop for a second and honestly ask ourselves whether we more naturally identify with Jesus or with the religious leaders. You got to do it. When you step out of your Christian circle for a minute and you get into the mess of this world, when you step out into your neighborhood or your school or your job and you're surrounded by the people who aren't in Christ, who don't know the same language you know, who haven't had the same spiritual experiences you have, who don't believe the same things you believe about ethics and politics and all of the above, when you get into the mess of the world, is your natural response compassion or anger? Is it love or is it offense? Is it sorrow or is it disgust? And by the way, don't mishear me. There's terrible stuff in this world. And there's a very real and holy place for righteous anger and desire for justice. That, that's a beautiful thing and has a place in the kingdom of God. But when you consider people, the people you know, the people you see, the people you talk to, even the terrible people, even the mean and evil people, and I'm going to use a strong phrase. Even the people in your life that you hate. I know none of us like to actually admit that that's a real feeling in our heart, but like, come on. The people that you hate. Can you see them with the broken heart of Jesus? Can you see them with the compassion of Jesus? Can you see past the ruination of the curse on their life and see the image of God stamped in them? Is your natural response to identify more with Christ or with the religious leaders. There is no kingdom of God ministry without the compassionate love of God. Period. Period. You will not judge people into salvation. You won't justice people into repentance. You won't hate people into submission to Christ. It's not how it works. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loves us. It is God's compassionate love for us that gives us the heart to give someone else the same love in spite of their sin. It was the kindness of God that led us to repentance and it will be the kindness of God that leads them to repentance. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be a conduit of the kindness of God because he loved you first. It is love that leads to sorrow over sin. It is patience and long-suffering that leads to healing and change. This is how God loves you. And it must fuel your own involvement in the mission of the kingdom. And so we say this every week at Emmanuel. As Christ pours into you, he pours out of you. That's the only thing that fuels the mission. So gratitude, compassion, compassionate love that meets the brokenness of the world with sorrow rather than disgust, with love rather than judgment. And then service. Because as Christ pours out and pours into you, he does pour out of you. Notice that Jesus does not separate the necessity of meeting real physical needs with meeting spiritual needs. You notice that? There's a reason for that, guys, because Jesus understands that human beings are a unity. You are a whole person. You're not a spirit who just rented a body for the next 60 years until you get to where you're supposed to go. You're not a ghost in a machine. You are a human being made by God in his image with body and spirit, a unity, a unique creature made in his image. You are not an animal with no soul and you are not an angel with no body. You are a human. And all of you is important. And so when Jesus serves, he serves the whole of the creation. He serves the whole of the creature. He doesn't tell the blind men that God will open their eyes of the heart and their salvation. He opens their eyes. He doesn't tell the demoniac that he'll have freedom in heaven. He casts out the demon. He doesn't tell the woman that she'll have purity in her eternity. He heals her menstrual illness. He doesn't tell the father the dead will eventually be raised in Christ. He raises the daughter. Now am I saying that you need to go and copy the miraculous ministry of Jesus? Probably not. <laughs> I would say that you do need to learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit. And if he tells you to do something nuts and supernatural, you should listen to him. 
But the reality is, that's not generally what kingdom ministry is going to look like for the average follower of Jesus, because you're not Jesus. But what it does mean is this. You have to treat people as whole people. As whole people. As a unity. Realizing that their body is not evil. That it's not like the spirit, good, body, bad. God made the whole thing. So meeting real physical needs is gospel work. Is that person hungry? Feed them. Are they struggling financially? Support them. Are they dealing with mental illness? Surround them with support. Are they lonely? Befriend them. Be with them in the real stuff of life because Jesus is with us in the real stuff of life. Amen? Be the hands and feet of Jesus to those who need Jesus because that is how he will, they will experience him. But service is connected to proclamation. Kingdom work will never be less than meeting real immediate needs, but hear this, beloved, it will always be more than simply meeting real immediate needs. Jesus didn't just heal the sick and feed the hungry. He did that, but he also told them the good news of the kingdom. Gospel service needs to be married to gospel proclamation because here's the thing, beloved, it's the same thing. You'll hear people say this old Christian cliche, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Uh, here's a truth for you, beloved. You cannot preach the gospel without words. Period. You can love people and you can serve them and you should because people are made in the image of God and they have dignity and they're worth being served. But if the gospel is not proclaimed, it's not proclaimed. People aren't psychic. They're not going to magic out of you. Oh, okay. He's a nice guy because Jesus. That's not how it works. There is a truth that changes reality. And that truth is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes, faith in that gospel comes by hearing. Which means the gospel must be proclaimed. Tony, Tony Campolo is an evangelist back in the day. And he has this beautiful bet. He, he ran this, for years and years and years, he ran this ministry that uh, did aid and education aid and relief aid uh, to Haiti. And he had this bit where he just goes, look, look. It is, a, it is a travesty, travesty to sit with someone who is starving and tell them about the bread of life and not give them bread. And there's truth to that. There's a cruelty in that to see someone having, experiencing real physical need and tell them about the needs of their soul and leave them in their physical need. But it is equally as cruel to send them to hell with a full stomach. Good deeds do not proclaim the gospel. The gospel must be proclaimed to be heard and to be believed. They go together. Jesus served and he proclaimed. And then lastly, church, prayer. So, gratitude, right? We start with remembering our own testimony. We go from gratitude to compassion because you can't proclaim the gospel to people that you don't love service and proclamation because they go together because you're a unity. And then prayer. We're going to end here because Jesus ends here. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. You notice that Jesus' closing command wasn't for his followers to go out and do a bunch of miracles like him. I mean, they are. But his command was for them to pray. You notice that? Why do you suppose that is? It's because this, guys. It's because prayer is kingdom work. <laughs> prayer is kingdom work. Prayer is part of the labor. And by the way, the singular most important part. Because it is God who seeks and saves the lost. It is God who steps into the muck and mire and finds us in our brokenness and draws us to life. It is God who died on a cross to defeat sin and rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit that we might ascend into heaven and be with him forever. It is the power of God that saves. And so if you look out at the broken world around you and you consider your family, your friends, your neighbors, your grandchildren, your coworkers, and you think of their lostness and it breaks your heart and you long for them to know Christ, you must go to the Father in prayer because it is his work that will save them. You can't save them. You can love them. You can serve them. You should. You're called to join Jesus in that work. But it is a work of Jesus to seek and save the lost. He is the Lord of the harvest. 
So to pray to the Lord of the harvest, beloved, that is kingdom work. Yes, you need to learn how to get into the mess of people's lives. You need to learn how to meet them in their real needs. You need to look for opportunities to proclaim the gospel boldly and bluntly and clearly. But in the midst of this, you must pray. Prayer is kingdom work. And I need you to hear this. Every single one of you can do this. It's so easy, I think, to hear the pastor talk about the kingdom call to go and preach and proclaim the gospel. And I get up here and I get real bold and I say things like, well, you know, you can't just serve. You got to preach the gospel too. And like something in like your heart's just like, oh, well, yeah, but that's super awkward. That sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. Right? It's easy to feel that way. You just go, I don't know. I don't know if I could say it super clearly. I would sound like an idiot. I might mess up the relationship. You're not even supposed to talk about religion. Can I get in trouble with HR for that? Like, it's so easy to hear me boldly proclaiming and just mentally go, I'm glad you're saying that, Pastor. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm here to tell you something. You can pray for God to move. Because here's the beautiful thing. It's a terrifying thing but it's a beautiful thing. Christ is going to have his. There's no power in all of reality that can stop Christ from having his. He doesn't step into his creation and say, ah, that's my child, and something else gets to say no. (laughs) That's not how the sovereign authority of God works. He's going to have his. And those in your life who are lost as lost can be and dead in their transgressions, who Christ is calling unto himself, He's going to call them unto himself, possibly in spite of you, possibly in spite of your unwillingness to participate with him in the work. But you're not going to somehow mess up his plan for their life. You're not smart enough for that. (laughs) That's just not how it works. Christ is going to have his way in this world, in this existence, in this reality. You get to be a part of it. I always use the example of like the, the kid handing tools to dad in the garage while he works on the car, you know? Like you're not working on the car. You have no idea what you're doing. You don't actually know what a 10 millimeter socket is. You're just like throwing tools at dad until he stops you know, yelling at you, you know? Maybe that was just my experience, I don't know. <laughs> but you get to be there and get to be a part of it. Beloved, you get to be a part of the work Jesus is doing. Don't miss out on it. Don't miss out on it. And I'll tell you something, and I, and I mean this in my heart of hearts. If you are at a place right now in your own faith journey, in your own life, where you just go, I am too weak, I can't do it. I just can't. I know I should. I know I should be more bold with this friend, this neighbor, this coworker. I know I should. I just can't get there yet. I'm going to tell you something you can do. You can pray to the Lord of the harvest. You can bring that person before the Lord every time you think about them and say, Lord, please save my grandkid. Lord, please save my neighbor. Lord, please send workers into the harvest field. Lord, please speak your gospel truth to this person. And you know what you can do? As you become more habituated to that work, which by the way is not terribly hard work, you can say, Lord, help me grow. Embolden me, Lord. Give me opportunities to talk to them that don't feel awkward or weird or forced. Lord, give me an opportunity to have a... Lord, let them ask me a question or something where it doesn't feel like it's some weird thing in our world. You can can talk to Jesus that way. You can ask him to give you opportunities to be in the work with him. Beloved, pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's kingdom work. You can get into the habit of taking walks around your neighborhood and praying for your neighbors. You can get into the habit of walking into your workspace and just praying over each nameplate or office you pass. You can get into the habit of learning who your classmates are, who the people you work out with are. And even if you don't feel like you can go and have a conversation with them, you can have a conversation with Jesus about them on their behalf. That's kingdom work. It's the single most important kingdom work, beloved. Don't miss it. So, gratitude compassion, service, proclamation, and prayer. If you want to join with Jesus in the work, 
That's what it's going to look like. So we're going to do something today that's probably a weird thing for us and how we land, but I think it'll be good for us. I've said this a couple times, but IFC is launching out a formal prayer ministry. It's going to involve several different things. We're going to train up some people who feel gifted in intercessory prayer to be prayer counselors, to be available at our worship services and those sorts of things. But also, like, if you're in the room and you're just like, ha I would never do that. Uh, but you love connecting with the Lord in prayer. Part of the prayer ministry of Emmanuel is going to be people who just commit to pray for what God's doing in our church, for things that happen in our building, for ministries we're involved in. If you want to grow in that part of your faith journey, if you want to grow in that part of your spiritual practice, I would encourage you to jump into that team with us. And to give us a little a little kind of jumping point to that. I'm going to do something a little different today for response time. Rather than have the band come up here and play a cool song, we all kind of like sit in the groove for a minute till someone comes up with communion. I'm actually going to leave the room awkwardly quiet for us for a minute. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to find some space, either by yourself or with someone you know and love and trust. I want you to find some space to pray. And you can pray silently or you can pray out loud. You can get on your knees, or you can sit in your chair. I want to encourage you to actually create some space in this room for you to be with the Lord for a minute. And I want to encourage you to pray to the Lord of the harvest. I want you to ask him very specifically to give you eyes and clarity on those in your life who don't know Christ. Whether that's family members, friends, coworkers, classmates, whoever. Let's take a few minutes. Let's sit in this silence. Consider the harvest. Beloved, the harvest is abundant. There is brokenness and need. There are sheep without shepherd. There is despondency all around you. Harvest is plentiful. It is the workers that are few. Let's take a few minutes to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And I want to encourage you, like if there's someone in the room that's a prayer partner or someone from your GC or one of the deacons or one of the elders, if you want to grab a couple of people and stand and sit and pray out loud, you can do that. If you want to come up here and get on your knees, whatever it looks like, let's take a few minutes. Let's be in this. Let's invite the Lord of the harvest to draw our own hearts to compassion, to give us names to consider, to bring to him. And when we've sat in that for a few minutes, we'll end our time with communion. Beloved, Meet with the Lord and do the work your heart needs to do.